0: This week on Mobile First, a conversation with Nick Shaw, co-founder and chief operating officer at Ampush.
1: We're in a world where creative problem solving is at the heart of all businesses right now. And so the idea, that the, the, the fun and the gratification of kind of leading towards a direction, but, but really having a team collaborate and creating a culture and environment where people are problem solving to figure out a solution that you couldn't have come up with yourself. I think that's, that's incredibly exciting.
0: Welcome to Mobile First. This is a weekly podcast that digs into the mobile strategy, user insights, and technology driving the latest in business innovation. This podcast is brought to you by Emerge Interactive. I'm your host, Jordan Bryant. Every week, I talk with today's biggest thought leaders leveraging mobile. We'll gain insights from their experience to help your organization truly become mobile first. Now, in this episode, we explore the number one native mobile advertising solution, Ampush, with our guest, co-founder, Chief Operating Officer, Nick Shaw. We're going to hear about their experience working with Dollar Shave Club with a closer look at what mobile advertising can do for a brand. Really excited to dig in to figure out what's happening on this mobile advertising front. So make sure you listen closely. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways from this episode on our website, EmergeMobileFirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's EmergeMobileFirst.com. Hey, Nick, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Really excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, man, absolutely. So Nick Shaw is the co-founder and chief operating officer at Ampush, a pioneer and leader in mobile-first advertising and customer experience. A Facebook marketing partner since 2011, Ampush provides direct response marketers a tech-enabled service for buying media at scale that is built to maximize customer lifetime value. Prior to Ampush, Nick worked as an investment banker at Morgan Stanley in New York and Mumbai, advising a range of deals from IPOs to mergers in the media and telecom industries. Nick graduated the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School with a dual concentration in finance and operations and information management. Nick can be found playing basketball, participating in dance-offs, fearing bicycles, loving all things India, cheering for the Detroit Pistons, and always being positive. So Nick, how about you tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Thanks for that, uh,
1: that quick bio. As it alludes to, I was born and raised outside of Detroit, Michigan in a town called West Bloomfield. I uh, you know, grew up, had a, a kind of a rich childhood with uh, uh, lots of warm, loving family around. Uh, my dad was a physician. My mom uh, worked in computer science and uh had two sisters um, but our family we had lots of extended family around too so just a very warm household my interests growing up were uh in in basketball uh, as as you could probably uh decipher from my uh fandom of the detroit pistons always was an analytical kid you know kind of excelled at math early on and, and kind of ran with that uh you know my, I, I come from a long line of physicians, my, my dad and a lot of folks in our family. One of the traditional Indian career paths is to go and become a doctor uh, to make your parents proud. Um, and so early on in high school, I kind of had, a, I was a bit of a rebel and, and, and sought out just kind of different interests and passions. And that ultimately led me to uh, studying business and eventually focusing on entrepreneurship. Um, today, I live in, uh, live in San Francisco. I actually split time between San Francisco and New York. You know, love to travel, get out of my comfort zone, learn a lot and uh, and have a good time with friends and family.
0: Yeah. So, you know, what I like to dig into first is that origin story and really what led you to be successful at what you do now. And it's always interesting, you know, when your parents do something different and you want to kind of go against the grain. And it's always interesting to see how they, you know, that environment still played a role in the in your perspective and your approach now. And so um, I'm also very similar, you know. I I rebelled, and I'm I'm the first one to go entrepreneurship route as well. So I'm curious, you know, what was the thing that you think uh, pushed you in that direction?
1: It's an interesting story, as I mentioned, when I was in high school and thinking about colleges to go to, um, and and you know what I wanted to major in and think about from a career perspective. I kind of decided I didn't know I wanted to do entrepreneurship at that point, but I knew I wasn't going to go into medicine. My dad was a cardiologist. I shadowed him, and I thought it was fascinating what he did. But you know, my path was different, and so I actually had an uncle that worked in finance. He was a Citigroup investment banker, and he traveled the world, and uh, and and just kind of I didn't know that much about finance and business, but the idea of kind of the life he was living was. Just kind of interesting to me, and he just seemed worldly and was working on with a lot of numbers and, and figures, and and so I just said, hey, you know, business is something I want to pursue, and ultimately uh, applied to Penn and and Wharton. Wharton had an undergrad program, and, and so just kind of found myself there with this general, you know, kind of rebellious desire to study business as opposed to medicine. And from there, that's where the Amper story really begins. I you know I started actually at a high school summer program at. Penn, um, and that's where I met my my co-founders at Ampush. I actually met at that high school summer program, um, which is a pretty crazy story. And then when we came back, and we were seniors in high school, and decided to uh, apply to Penn. Once we once we got our admission letters, we you know we we basically said, hey, we already know each other. Why don't we live together? And so we ended up applying for a triple at, at the quad at Penn, kind of the main dorm at the University of Pennsylvania. And, and once we kind of matriculated, we, 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 we lived together, became best friends. But it was really interesting because at that point, you know, we, were all, we all came to Penn because we did have, we had developed this interest in business and entrepreneurship and you know, quickly realized that Penn, at that time at least, was much more of a, a finance trade school, right? The first week you get there and you're hearing about the Goldman Sachs information session and, and all these consulting programs. And so throughout that time at, at college, we always kind of went back and forth between pursuing these professional careers um, in finance and consulting, which were, which were great careers and 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 interesting and lucrative and great foundations. But then the, uh, the other side of our brains really wanted to go after entrepreneurship. And there was such, you know, I went to school between 2000, uh, 2002 and 2006. Um, you know, this was an era where. A lot of the Web 2.0 technologies were coming out. Facebook was started around that time. There was just lots of disruption happening around the Internet. And so we had tons of interest in, in technology as well. Um, and so, you know, our story kind of through that, the three of us stuck together as best friends and went back and forth between our Wall Street summer internships and starting crazy college businesses, ultimately post-college you know, we just didn't have that that conviction and that persistence to really go after entrepreneurship. And so spent our first few years working um, in professional services. I was at Morgan Stanley, as you mentioned. And then the financial crisis hit, and it was kind of an interesting inflection point, obviously a, a tragic time for many people. But for us, from a career perspective, it just was an inflection point to, to step back and say, hey, what do we want to do? And what do we want to be when we grow up? And it was just a an interesting time to kind of take the plunge, and we we all quit our jobs, moved out to California, and um, and
0: started started a technology business. That's an awesome story. So all the way back from high school, you guys have stayed connected. Do you think having that those relationships helped you become a better entrepreneur, or were you already pretty set at you know you had that drive and this is who I was, was going to be and that helped you get there? Or do you believe it, it more amplified it or it was what you needed?
1: I absolutely believe that it was, it's, a, it's a critical um, part of our success and fortitude through this, uh, you know, through this period of building Ampush. You know, it's funny, a lot of people, especially early on, um, when they looked at us, the three of us went to the same school, had the same major, basically started out at the same jobs. And people would ask us, like, why would you partner with people that have the exact same skills as you? Don't you want like someone with technical experience or some type of complementary skill set? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I do think that's valuable, but you know, more than that, I think what what trumps that kind of complementary skill set is ultimately business is hard, and having partners that you can trust, that you enjoy being around uh, that, that you want to kind of fight the highs and lows through, um, and, and you want to be with each other through thick and thin. I think that is so much more critical. And because we had that long-standing partnership where, you know, we've been, we've been best friends since high school, but we understand each other's character. We understand each other's values and and there's really no one else we'd rather be kind of in business with. And so I think that the three of us collectively, I think just give you, you know, give each other a lot of strength.
0: And and courage to kind of go through, and, and it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I like that. It's there's a lot of that art and science, right? It's coming at it from the science perspective. Yeah, it makes sense to have those complementary skills because then you can focus on you know what needs to be done from different perspectives. But I think really that art side of it in the relationship, there's just so many any in- intangible things that take place, you know, outside of the business as an entrepreneur. Those highs and lows. That having that support system is It sounds like it's trumped the the other part of it for you guys, and obviously that success uh, shows from it. Yeah, you read a lot of those articles that you know it's it can be
1: lonely. It can be an incredibly lonely feeling to be um, you know to be an entrepreneur and and I think having that you know having that partnership support at least there you know for us, at least there's two other people that kind of understand completely the, you know, the stress and the uncertainty and the risks that we're taking. And, you know, you can kind of look at each other. A lot of times you can't talk about that, right? You don't want to, uh, you know, unfortunately, you can't communicate everything out to the employees or even your executive teams, you know, and, and you have to kind of manage that communication. But, but here are a couple of folks that
0: you can be um, that just kind of know exactly what it's like and, and can be with you through it. So you know, in transitioning to AMPush from the financial sector, what prompted that? You know, because that's completely, I guess, for me, it seems like a, a big leap to go into advertising. But I guess maybe not. I guess can you maybe talk about what that transition was like and, and what caused you guys want to pursue this venture?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So you know, the
1: truth is, we we quit our jobs in late two thousand nine, early two thousand ten moved out to California, we ended up crashing with my co-founder Jesse's parents. Um, and we did not have a business plan. We didn't have an idea. We um, certainly didn't raise any capital like we had nothing. We had a, basically, uh, you know, we used that base camp tool. And we had a bunch of trends going on in the world and a bunch of sub ideas, but there was, there was nothing. And, and you know, to be honest, the parents thought we were a little bit, nutty especially during a recession kind of leaving what were pretty solid jobs but you know ultimately they supported us and so we we spent a few months and we kind of did what you know business geeks do we kind of looked at a bunch of those trends and did your porter's five forces analysis and said hey what's a good business to get to and we we realized after about a month or two of that that you know we we are so analytical we can convince ourselves not to do any business (laughs) you know we, we, we were just Masters of Analysis Paralysis, because that's what you do a lot in many times many times in in financial services and consulting. And so we said, you know, screw it, we just got to get into something. Uh, what do we want to get into? And the world of online advertising was attractive because we were number we were numbers guys. And at that time everything was trending towards, you know, the real-time auction marketplaces. Obviously, Google was already a major success, but Facebook was coming in with their you know real-time bidding advertising platform. Display was being you know big, but everything was kind of moving to programmatic. And we said, hey, this is kind of you know this is kind of fascinating. There's so much data here, and so much changing on the supply side of this media equation. Uh, meanwhile, the demand side hasn't changed at all, right? Customers at the advertisers at the end of the day are looking for more customers to drive more sales, and yet the ground is just kind of shaking underneath them. Yeah. Um, and if we can come in and and provide. Solutions and help usher them into the new world, then then maybe we can add a lot of value. So that's how the business started. You know, I know you gave a bit of background on the company up front, but but the story, as as many entrepreneurial stories go, took a lot. The business has taken a lot of twists and turns um, over the last seven years. Actually, today is our seven year anniversary since inception. Ah, congratulations. Kind of crazy because we didn't really know what we were doing. we We stumbled upon kind of the performance marketing and lead generation space. and what was convenient about that was, you know, when you go out to customers, whether they're in the mortgage industry or insurance company and say, hey, we're going to drive you leads, pay us per lead, it's, it's very easy for them to test, test you out and give you like a, a trial budget. Um, and ultimately, if the leads back out, that's great. And so, you know, the started the business. It took us about six to nine months to get that off the ground because we were, we were the masters of just kind of underestimating the work it took to, to get something off the
0: ground. Most people.
1: Yeah you know a quick tangent advisor of ours once uh, said you know hey you guys use the word just a lot like just is the most dangerous word in the dictionary and we're like what do you mean he's like you keep saying oh we're just going to build these landing pages and we're just going to figure out search and and then we'll just do this and we'll just hire a guy and and all of those justs were like very very challenging so anyway we struggled and 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 really didn't get much traction for the first 9 months but but then ultimately, we just kept persevering and iterating, and ultimately got this lead generation business off the ground. Um, and in the back half of 2010, started scaling to, you know, six figures and eventually seven figures monthly uh, spend and revenue, um, and we were profitable, which was kind of, uh, you know, exciting. And so in that first year, while we took a lot of took a lot of hits, ultimately we came out of it knowing a lot about the online advertising space we went from just being spreadsheet finance spreadsheet monkeys to uh, actually understanding online media pretty well because we spent a year 24/7 working on it we had built a small team and a pretty cool culture and we had a little bit of cash coming in the door so when we turned the corner to 2011 we said you know hey how do we how do we take this to the next level how do we make this more exciting you know we're doing some media arbitrage but but what's the next big thing And we looked at our business and we were in a few verticals. We're like, hey, we could go to other verticals. But the most exciting part of our business at the time was Facebook. We were driving 30% of our leads were coming from the Facebook platform. And this was a time where, I mean, Facebook was just right-hand side ads on the desktop. They're talking 2010 here, like, don't even think about it. There wasn't even a mobile app for Facebook at this time. But I think we kind of discovered that, hey, this power of being able to you know, hyper-target at scale, finding these really niche audiences, but finding 30,000 people like that across the United States or globe, that had a lot of power to it. And it was something different than what search was doing. Um, And so we pivoted the business. We actually were one of Facebook's first API partners where we were building technology directly into the Facebook ad infrastructure and uh, building technology to optimize ads at scale And we went out to the marketplace and say, hey, you guys need help with your Facebook advertising. And at that time, 2011, 2012, that was an incredibly strong value proposition. Everyone wanted to figure out Facebook. It was the hottest thing. Um, And so we were getting CMOs and VPs of marketing saying, yes, get in here
0: ASAP. Nice. Timing is perfect.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, 2011 to 2013 was a funny phase because like everyone was interested, but nobody really knew what was going on. We kind of call it the likes craze era. Uh, Because we had signed up, I mean, massive customers, Walmart, Samsung, and and everyone, what we were doing was acquiring likes for them. Um, And at the time, you know, we thought, hey, you know, there was a spin in terms of like, you know, hey, acquiring likes to your page, this is going to be really valuable. That ended up not actually being the case. The the platform evolved materially since 2011. Um, And so we kind of, you know, muddled around with the offering at that time. And then 2013 was really the breakthrough moment because that's when mobile came out, Facebook determined we're going to be a mobile first company and mobile is everything. And within two years, they went from essentially 0% mobile advertising to now over 80% mobile advertising. Um, And Ampush was right at the heart of that. We, We saw mobile as the opportunity and oriented ourselves as a mobile first company and went out to performance advertisers and said, hey, we're going to help you with your mobile first customer acquisition. And we have the technology and services to do that. Um, and and kind of the rest was history. 2013 to 2015, Ampush grew from 30 people to 150 people, uh, driving 300 million dollars in ad spend from what was you know something much more minimal uh, back in those early days. And and it was just an incredibly exciting
0: time. So that's kind of the that's the story. That's an awesome story. And maybe for you know those of us that don't know, can you uh, maybe explain in detail exactly what Ampush does and maybe that process of going through you know getting started with facebook advertising or just you know mobile advertising in general
1: yeah absolutely we you know so we help you know our tagline is that we're helping disruptive companies acquire customers achieve measurable business objectives on mobile first platforms like facebook twitter pinterest instagram snapchat and we do that uh, and we find these unique and innovative ways to grow their customer base through a combination of technology and team. Um, so we have a platform that is essentially a media buying and optimization platform that integrates directly into all the publishers that I just mentioned. But we're not a software-only business. We believe heavily that for the performance advertisers we work with, a combination of technology plus team is required to actually achieve the business outcome. So you know, our, our product and offering includes both that technology
0: and, and the services layer That's absolutely critical. I see. Okay. So you, you have an internal team that is like working on the software to supplement kind of the overseeing uh, expertise, I guess, strategy to see so kind of how you're approaching it from both angles to create the outcome. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So, so we'll work with in-house marketing teams and collaborate, understand kind of what the business objective is, collaborate on, on what that marketing ch- strategy to achieve that is, and then you know the the software they'll be using the software directly, we'll be using the software in house for management and optimization, um,
0: and and together we help them execute and actually drive the result. I know you know Dollar Shave Club was one of the clients, and they just got acquired for like a billion dollars. So interested to learn maybe you know how you worked with them and maybe apply that process that you just explained in, in that specific use case? Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's it's actually quite a funny story because back in when we onboarded them, I believe it was in around 2013, we were actually debating whether it makes sense to take them on as a customer. At that time, you know, they were maybe a 15-person company, 10, 15-person company, right. like working out of a garage in Santa Monica. They were spending, you know, a few thousand dollars a month on, on Facebook. And we were otherwise working with these big enterprises, like, like the Walmarts and the Samsungs and the American express, you know, type advertisers. Yeah. And, you know, my co-founder had the meeting with them and came back and said, Hey, you know, I think it's interesting. We could take a shot. I'm like, well, what's the budget? What's the size we're trying to figure out the, you know, the ideal client profile. We invest a lot in partnerships. And so it has to make sense for us. And he was kind of going through all the metrics. I'm like, dude, this makes this makes no sense. They're too small. Like the product sounds commoditized. Like, what, what's going on? And and ultimately, you know, what we 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 made the call to work with them. And and so, you know, the way the engagement works is that again, we're they have a specific customer acquisition objective, whatever it was, you know, acquiring millions of people to, to their Razor subscription um, and doing that at an effective cost. And so in that example. We understood what that that vision that behag was, and I think we all agreed that Facebook was an incredible platform to um, you know to help reach those prospects and create awareness around this product and ultimately convert them. Um, so both that combination of awareness and measurable conversion was was of huge value, and Facebook could could deliver it. Um, and so you know we partnered with them early on and then kind of made the bet, and it went from being this like you know, little little side project we were working on to, we cracked a couple of things and they raised a little bit of funding and then they started spending in six figures. And and by, you know, the middle of 2015, a couple of years into the partnership, they were one of our largest partners. And and it was an incredibly exciting story and case study. And it kind of gets me to, you know, what what we realized throughout that is that, you know, our, our mission, our purpose in life, like, you know, we've never considered ourselves or, or frankly gotten excited about being uh, you know, just an advertising company or considered ourselves, you know, just marketing guys, right? That's never what we were in our background. But, but we, were, we were business guys. And we, what got us up in the morning was the idea that we were going to deliver value to businesses across these verticals that would help them grow in ways they couldn't replicate anywhere else in the world. Um, and and I think Dollar Shape Club more than any other probably uh, story was was exactly that you know they came to us as this little startup and by the time you know they were they were acquired this year Amplify should help them you know acquire millions of customers I, I think even even they would say it would have been very very difficult without the the partnership and some of the technology that we were deploying um, against their business case.
0: Yeah, I mean, their story is obviously insane. And, you know, it's, it's awesome to be part of that story. And and you guys having a main role in driving that, what are some of the strategies that you employed in helping them achieve that, you know, from going from the couple thousand a dollar a month spend to six figure, seven figure a month spend there? Uh, What what were some of the things that you guys were doing specifically that helped them kind of grow in, in that monthly spend?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the, uh, there were tons of strategies and tactics, as you can imagine. Um, So it it would take me, you know, hours to hours to go through them. But, um, you know, I I think the biggest thing, the biggest insight that we had was, you know, Dollar Shave Club, let's not let's not talk about razors as a commoditized product. If you're thinking about it that way, you're thinking about it wrong, like the reality of, of Dollar Shave Club, and frankly, many of the Kind of e commerce innovations and subscription commerce innovations is that this is about customer experience innovation. The way people are buying things or have bought things 10 years ago is completely stale and completely inefficient. And this new trend is helping get things more personalized, more convenient, more cost effective, whatever it may be. And Dollar Shave Club, frankly, was all, all three of those things. And so once we had that. You know, once we had that insight that, hey, this is a, this is a massive customer experience innovation, you know, they were a disruptor. It's not like people were typing in Dollar Shave Club or actively needed to you know, change the way that they were shaving. Um, it was an awareness issue. Now that we understand that this is about customer e- experience innovation, how can we use this massive Facebook platform and more broadly kind of mobile media to tell this story? and create awareness. And, and it's interesting, because again, we're not, we're not the mad men advertising guys. Like we're not, we're not like the, you don't think about ourselves as storytellers, but we realized that this was a huge kind of product market fit application for these types of disruptive companies and what Facebook can offer as a platform. And so as new as mobile came out, as things like carousel ads came out, right, where, you know, you can, you've seen those, right, where you can swipe through, um like tile by tile in your newsfeed. it it gave, it created these, whether it was video or 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 carousel or slideshow ads. It created these um, unique opportunities to tell a story um, and create awareness. Uh, but then also because it's digital and because there's call to actions and you can measure it, we could actually track that down to you know to the conversion. And so I would say that the kind of unique ad types to tell a story provided a huge advantage. Um And then when you couple that with the unique ability to actually measure whether it was directly a conversion there or through a lot of the, because everything around Facebook and some of these other platforms is about unique identity, you could actually more easily measure if someone saw an ad on mobile and converted on desktop. There, there's some pretty powerful attribution advantages there. So I'd, I'd highlight those couple as, as
0: pretty interesting. So then do you set up and manage like that, that full end-to-end click funnel through Facebook? To get the deep analytics, or or you are like a more at the beginning of the funnel, not quite toward the website and and the conversion like on those dot com properties. Yeah, no,
1: we have we have tracking and analytics end to end, understanding the impression level data, which is you know why why our technology hooks in directly to the Facebook Ads API um, to obviously the click stream data, um, and then we have. Pixels and tracking on the actual um, our, on our partners' website to make sure we understand that end-to-end flow and even understand it across channels and, and in certain models we're actually taking on ownership of some of those landing pages where we're hosting them for them kind of kind of sub micro sites to actually drive the conversions ourselves and, and add a lot of value through conversion
0: optimization. So then with, um, with the Dollar Shape Club, I mean you identified that there's this just this narrative that uh, will get people just hooked on the product, how were you able to portray that to your demographic? What were the things you were doing through Facebook advertising that was allowing you to convert these people?
1: Fundamentally, I think the, the, the basic power of, of Facebook is that you can target the right demographic and give them the right message. And because so many people use Facebook for so much time every day, um, you have the opportunity to, to actually reach them at scale. Um, unlike any other, any other media really on the planet. So, so I think, I think the basics of kind of tar- tailoring the, the, cr- the creative and kind of call to action to the right demographic, right? A different story if, if a, um, to the, the, the 40 year old executive dude who's buying a, you know, buying a razor versus kind of the, the fresh college grad. It might be a different narrative there, or maybe based on location, it's a different narrative. Maybe a, a, a girlfriend is buying for her boyfriend, or what we discovered was that a lot of uh, girls were using the razors themselves, even though it was completely positioned towards um, the male demographic, because they liked it. So that, you know, once you, if you're targeting females for themselves, it's a different narrative. So I think that kind of tailoring and personalization of, of ad creative to audience um, is, is incre- a, a, an important strategy. Um, and then I think, you know, in that time, 2013 to 2015, you saw a crazy amount of innovation in terms of ad types coming out from these platforms, just the way you could capture the, the mobile app installed, Dollar Shape Club, it, it actually created a mobile app. And so we were driving mobile app downloads, you were driving, you know, signups to a mobile flow, you were having video ads that were just creating awareness, like there were literally five or seven, five to seven different types of distinct creative that could be used to drive a different objective, whether it was like a retargeting ad to just get the person to sign up or a re-engagement ad to get a churn subscriber back on, or kind of a a, a video or slideshow to create um, create awareness around the product. Um, so I think it was leveraging those that power in the right way to to kind of aggressively scale their customer acquisition. And then, you know, at the end of the day, on the back end, like ultimately, this is all about, numbers and math and that's where kind of our algorithms and systems come in play where we are automated rules are kind of adjusting the bids and the budgets based on downstream conversions you know every every hour right there's there's thousands and thousands of changes happening to to tens of thousands of ads um, in any given
0: day and so that's kind of where the analytics and platform come in. So Nick, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the company has made several pivots to get where you are now. And as you alluded to, you know, the channels are evolving. And so the way that you're approaching the individual channels uh, with, you know, the current offering are constantly changing. And, you know, like you'd mentioned, you know, driving to the dot com, driving to downloads uh, in the app store, and there's just things are rapidly changing in this space. And so I'm curious, you know, what you're anticipating the future of mobile advertising being, you know, that you had made the move to mobile and where you're seeing things continually go. And, you know, there's, there's advertising, you know, platforms popping up like Apple search ads and augmented reality coming where there's going to be now a whole different landscape to advertise in. I'm curious where you're seeing advertising going and um, things that you're interested in, in seeing taking place there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. You know, I think you know, for us, uh, frankly, for the for even the basics of mobile advertising, I think there are there's tons of room to, to grow and innovate. And I think the, ultimately, enterprises and businesses have not caught up. Their advertising infrastructure and mobile strategies have not caught up with consumer behavior. Consumer behavior has completely shifted mobile people's websites, their landing pages, their their mobile optimized flows, their measurement a lot of the business side of this is still pretty rudimentary um even and in some cases doesn't even exist at all so you know what we're focused on in the in the near term frankly is is helping our partners have world class mobile first customer acquisition flows because we know that's going to help them drive tons of value and so what that means is like i was saying being on top of the newest ad types right facebook Live or, or doing interesting things with video or 360 or, or the Canvas ads that Facebook's come, coming out with, which are creating these really immersive storytelling experiences. So I think that's one big part of it. There's still a lot of innovation and understanding to be done in terms of the, the conversion flows. So, you know, a lot of times you can get the ad right, but if you take it to a mobile page that's designed for a desktop, which many companies unfortunately still do. You know that that's an issue, and so uh, you know creating that right mobile experience, whether it's an optimized landing page or an app, um, is is still there's just lots of room for improvement there. And honestly, on the on the measurement and attribution side, I think you know mobile the shift of mobile people have changed the way that they consume the internet. Right, it used to be a desktop oriented thing just you know five ten years ago, and and now it's almost completely many folks just access the internet. Um, exclusively on mobile or tablet or, or just meaningfully shifted that. Um, but, but tracking and measurement has also not caught up with it. So our understanding of how people are kind of, you know, cross-browser behavior, cross-device behavior is still pretty rudimentary. And so there's areas of opportunity to, to improve there. Um, but I think beyond that, you know, when you think about some of the bigger trends, you know, virtual reality, obviously very, very exciting. I, I don't think for at least marketing and advertising it it's a it's a two to three year opportunity maybe it, it looks more like a five to ten year opportunity. Um, people have to first understand the platform in the next few years and 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 it has to attract the eyeballs first, which it hasn't done yet. Um, we actually are pretty excited about just messaging and and some of the innovation on the advertising side that Facebook has had with Facebook Messenger now you know whatsapp has had some kind of interesting stuff from an advertising standpoint but you know, when you think about old school conversion flows, a lot of it, there were emailers that led to call centers or even even desktop lead conversions that ultimately had, you know, closed sale of the phone or you go walk into a store and, and, and talk to someone about it. We think Messenger has the opportunity to really disrupt that conversion flow um, and provide pretty unique value. Um, And maybe it's, maybe it's value, it could be to high end high LTV products, or, or maybe those will continue to be kind of more, you know, human or in person or call center driven, but, but it could add a level of service for kind of the mid level consideration products, where you, you know, you're not, it's not an impulse buy, and you'd like to talk to someone to understand your options a little bit better. We think Messenger can have a really powerful place to help the consumers through the journey, but also kind of be this this kind of new measurable,
0: scalable media platform for businesses to leverage for their growth. I'm curious what you think, you know, advertising is going to be if Facebook isn't able to continually, I guess, breach the younger demographic and how you would consider getting into uh, some of these other platforms that, uh, and how to touch uh, through mobile in, in different ways like that. You know, I think the, I think Facebook's acquisition
1: of uh, of Instagram was certainly kind of a, a proof point that you know they saw a bit of vulnerability uh, in terms of kind of timeshare, uh, particularly for the younger demographic. And so I think there's no question that that's you know that's top of mind. You know, it, it, I think it depends what vantage point you're looking at if you're uh, you know as an advertising company versus uh, versus an investor in the space. You know I think with my investor hat on, you know, uh, uh, Facebook, at the end of the day, they will remain, uh, they can remain acquisitive, right? If there are meaningful properties that come up, they have a lot of advantage because they've built this crazy network effect, not with consumers, but with advertisers, right? They have 4 million advertisers on the platform with elastic budgets, and you plug in the Facebook ad stack to a, plat- a, a, a publisher like Instagram or like any of these other ones, you can drive tons and tons of value. They can probably monetize it two to four X better than anyone could independently. Um, And so, you know, I I think the two kind of mitigants to that risk are the fact that, you know, Facebook can continue to be acquisitive and it'll be extremely financially attractive for them as well as, you know, the company looking to to sell. And that's a unique, um, unique place to be in. Um, And then I think the other thing, which is that, you know, ultimately, Facebook's consumer network effect, I think, continues to remain strong. All of the usage metrics around Facebook continue to be just incredible and mind blowing uh, in terms of the time on site. You know, fifty minutes a day. Uh, the, the billions of users. You know, one point. I don't know what the latest one point two billion or so. Um, and and that's honestly just focused on Facebook. And so the fact that it's the platform everyone else is on, I think, continues to just have a have a gravity. And you'll always have kind of niche sites, but but frankly, the risk will always be the staying power of those. Actually, will those be you know real, and will they turn into big businesses? I think there's no question Facebook is going to continue to be, you know, real, because it's ultimately like the system of record for identity. It's where everyone is. And I think, you know, that, that, uh, sure, you know, young people might not find it like the coolest place to post, you know, certain photos or, or share certain stories, but, but eventually they grow up and they will. So ultimately, Facebook, in my opinion, will kind of acquire those demographics with, with time. And, and then it's more about kind of cherry picking some of the niche audiences uh, to make sure they have exposure there. Um, so so I, I, I think it's a risk for them, but it's one that certainly is i don't I don't think it's nearly as hyped as or nearly as big as it was hyped out to be um, about a year or two ago. Um, and I think it's staying power as strong. And frankly, as an advertising company, i'm I'm somewhat indifferent to it. I mean, I think it's more of a frankly a risk that Facebook has so much power in the ecosystem. And as an independent company, you'd almost want to see, you want to see Facebook, Google, you don't want it to be a Facebook and Google game, which is what it's shaping out to be. You would love Snapchat to rise and be a real third partner and, and Twitter, depending on kind of how the potential acquisition goes that's been rumored this week, you know, them to you know fall somewhere and I'd love to see kind of market sh- share spread a bit more because I think that. That gives us a little bit more power in the ecosystem, so so we don't we're not too concerned with that either.
0: Okay, yeah, no, I was just I was just interested just with those rumors taking place and and um, you know how committed you guys are to Facebook because you own that now and just you know just talking more about you know future future forward you know what you were seeing there. So that was just interesting. I wanted to get your feedback there. Uh, um, so you are jumping into some rapid fire questions, Nick, how would you define innovation? When I think about innovation. Um, you know, you, you often kind of uh,
1: you imagine this like light bulb moment, um, and maybe I did think about it <laughs> back in the day as as this kind of like you just you just come up with this idea. But I actually think a lot more practically about innovation these days. You know, I think innovation it starts with it starts with a vision, right? And many times as, as an entrepreneur, you have to create a vision. And when you do that, when you set out to some point in the future, you have to think about that vision, ignoring just having complete you know, disregard for all resource constraints or any sense of reality. It's like, what do you want? Just dream it up. And I think the process of innovation is then approaching that, and then and then coming facing those constraints head to head, and saying, "I'm going to beat you. I'm going to figure out a way around you to achieve that vision." So it's much more about this ruthless, relentless pursuit of of a, a vision and an idea that was that was set rego- like. Disregarding constraints and then figuring out how to get there. And I think that, you know, it's that that saying that the, you know, the constraints drive the creativity. Once you have that, and you're forced with constraints, then you then it's a problem solving exercise. And
0: to me, that's really what innovation is. I like that. And I think that's a good segue into this next question. Would you put more emphasis then on the idea or the execution and then, how would you weigh each in one? I know you just talked about the process and journey, so I kind of have an idea of where you're going to go. But I'm curious, how would you? What percentage would you weigh?
1: I'm certainly more of a you know execution minded. I think the the idea is important. I think what's more important, frankly, than the idea is that it's the market or the problem you're solving. Um, and so, you know, markets. Uh, let's let's take the taxi industry for example. Like, it's not you know, Uber is a great idea, but I think that. It's it's the it's understanding the market, right? I, I think they had a a really strong pulse of like people need to get from place a point A to point B. Right, and yeah. and that's the problem. It's not just a technology. It's not an app company. Like it's a transportation and logistics company, and they 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 kind of had a, a vision to do it in a in a much better way. And then and frankly, a lot of people had that. There were a lot of companies doing that. But what made Uber stand out and ultimately win in that marketplace was execution. The way they hustled, their speed to market their approach to different city teams and how they've engineered stuff and and different decisions like that, that business is, you know, I, you know, all execution. Um, And, and I would actually say the same thing with Facebook, right? You You go back 10, 12 years and, or 10 years and, and Facebook, you know, they were, they were one of a handful of social networks and they weren't the biggest one, but the execution that, that Zuck and that team took in terms of being disciplined and focusing on the experience and speed. Or I remember the time I kind of switched over from Friendster to Facebook because the pictures actually loaded on Facebook. And, and that wasn't about some crazy idea of a social network. That was like execution. That was Mark going in and being like, hey, like we, we do not compromise on uptime and we don't com- compromise on load time. Um, and and I think it's thousands and thousands of those execution decisions uh-huh. that end up creating these successful businesses, rather than you know one one idea or operation. So I would probably be more like 90-10 or ninety nine one somewhere between there um, ex- execution to idea.
0: How about what's been your biggest learning lesson so far uh, on your journey in mobile advertising?
1: That's a good that's a good one. You know, I would say you know the the lesson for me more broadly with entrepreneurship has been. I didn't realize when we got in. We started the business when we were 25 years old, and you don't when you when you start when you're starting a business. You know, you think about the product and and the idea of like you know running your own business and being your own boss, but like you don't realize as much about that. It's all about people and culture and and how much of your time will be spent there. How much uh, of your success will be determined by the decisions you make there? Um, But you just don't appreciate that. The second a company, you know, gets beyond 25 people, certainly beyond 100 people. It's no longer about your ideas or even your own execution. It's about the culture that you've built, the environment that you've created, and and how that organization can effectively work together to solve problems. And so uh, that uh, it's just something I, I just couldn't fathom or appreciate um, as, a, as a younger entrepreneur. And, and now I realize that, you know,
0: that's that's ninety nine percent of the battle. How about your favorite business book? Hmm, business book. There's a lot. Um, you got to pick one.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you one I'm reading right now that I, I actually am I'm loving. I'm about halfway through it, but um, it's a book called Shoe Dog, and it's by Phil Knight, uh, the founder of Nike. Um, and and what I like about it is that it's just. I mean, it is you know he started the business in the '60s. You know, I, I you, I've just told you a bunch about you know, my, my feelings on ideas versus execution, uh, that was a shoe company. And then eventually an apparel company, like it wasn't really about, uh, some crazy idea, right? Like he, he was passionate about sports and competition and playing, and then just was ruthless about execution. And, uh, and it's just been kind of exciting. It's very well written. It's been exciting to kind of like see those stories and, and kind of get back to those early days. Uh, because, uh, you know, because I think it's always, especially, you know, hitting a milestone like we have today, seven years, it's kind of good rejuvenation to say, you know, this is, this is what it's all about. It's, it's just kind of, built, it's a lot of fun. It's problem solving, it's hustling. Um, and, and that's where, that's why you decided to do this in the first place.
0: So how about, uh, what's your favorite digital resource?
1: I'm a big, I've always been a big Quora fan. I don't know if you do you use Quora yeah. often. Um, I just love I just love the concept and the mission there. I think the over the last couple of years, I don't think it's kind of taken off as exponentially as some of the other, you know, social media and content sites, but I think just the idea that, you know, you can you can pose a question and and through the platform you, you can hopefully find the best person in the world to answer that question. And it's a marketplace for that idea, those ideas and information. I think that's a very powerful concept. And and I'm excited to see where uh, Quora can take that.
0: Are you on there constantly answering
1: questions too? You know, I don't answer a ton. I, um, I end up just kind of reading and, and perusing quite often, but I probably should. And then lastly, what's your favorite mobile app and why? Favorite mobile app. You know, there's actually, I'm going to give an endorsement. This is kind of a, a nerdy work related one, but there's uh we, we just kind of overhauled our video conferencing software um, with a company called Zoom, a software called Zoom. Yeah. Um, and Zoom. it is, it is, you know, Ampush is San Francisco and New York based. Um, and it is just mind blowing how just close and connected we feel. It's, it's a, uh, it's a cost-effective video solution um, and it you can be sitting here I'm sitting here in New York and with a click of a button, I can feel like I'm in a conference room in San Francisco and have a really productive meeting and their mobile app is is just equally plug and play um, and and I don't think anyone has really executed um, so flawlessly in what is, you know, an obvious idea, but still something people have struggled to, to bring to life. So, so video conferencing, that's my plug for Zoom. It's <laughs> the, the small business video conferencing
0: solution. There's got to be some affiliate marketing plan out there's there. There's not. I'll actually, look into that for you.
1: <laughs> there, there should be because, uh, you know, hopefully I'll drive them some sales. But no, it's, it's a great
0: product. And so I got to... Got to respect it. So we're, we're nearing the end of our time here. So Nick, what's the coolest thing you're working on right now that you want everyone to know about? So a big part
1: of, I kind of gave you the story how Ampush grew up, you know, in the Facebook era and, and social era. And, and we were known as kind of one of the top social advertising technology companies. Um, but, but recently, we've actually evolved a new, a kind of a deeper engagement model where we take over more channels, basically social and search, as well as some other networks. And actually own and host landing pages, and ultimately just drive end customers. So it's not even a you know media execution for a service fee type of model. We get paid per new customer, and we just own the entire conversion flow and get to kind of share and participate in the value. And so, you know, you know that's actually been a pretty interesting and unique market uh, and product offering that we've we've brought to to certain disruptive companies. What's really interesting, some of the some of the now that we have this added data. For, you know, not just understanding your social conversion data, but your social and search for companies like Dollar Shave Club that we've talked about earlier that are clearly, you know, it's not an attribution question of like measuring perfectly where everything is going. It's there's actually a hypothesis that we're going to create awareness on social and then harness and convert that halo effect, either by retargeting on social or, you know, getting seeing increases in, in search and branded search. Or type in traffic to the to the URL, um, and so we actually have some pretty. Now that we have access to that data, um, we have some pretty unique insights and strategies and products coming out um, that'll specifically help, you know, leverage social to drive this halo effect on on search and type in, um, and have it more measurable than ever before. And I think it's going to unlock for the partners that we work with um, unlock a tremendous amount of value. So we're pretty excited
0: about that. Sweet, yeah. I'd love to stay connected and and keep everyone updated on that. Would that be available on on the website in the future, or is something more getting in touch direct with Ampush representatives would help onboard for something like yeah,
1: that? Yeah, it'd be getting in touch with us directly, with right? like our, our relationship, their enterprise kind of deeper relationships. So that's how
0: we'd get access. Great, and so you know, if we wanted to get in touch with you, what is the best way to reach out? Uh, email is great. It's just nick.shaw, S-H-A-H, at ampush.com. All right, so check out ampush.com, Nick, Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. It was, it was awesome to have you on and to you know share and get some of your insight. Oh, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join us next week for a conversation with Joanna Herrick, Director of Custom Operations at Trunk Club. We're gonna dig into their experience scaling Trunk Club as a digitally native vertical brand and take a closer look at their custom operations, which has been a vital part of Trunk Club that's allowed them to maintain a personalized and custom experience with their members. So you're not gonna to wanna to miss that one. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit EmergeMobileFirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first.